Good morning, church family. My name's Craig. I'm the senior pastor here today, and I'm so glad that you've made time to be with us as we come together to gather and worship Lord Jesus Christ. This Sunday, we continue our January with me not preaching, which gets me sort of going to the DTs at this point in time. I'm, I'm, I don't do real well with it, but I am excited today. Uh, we have two of our men who will be preaching, one in this service and a different one in the second service. But this morning in our first service, my good friend Stephen will be coming. Uh, Stephen, you can come on at this point in time. We'd love to have you. Um, uh, Stephen has been serving as an intern with us this fall and working diligently to, to sort of chase and parse out what God's calling his life. So this morning, Stephen's coming to preach uh, uh, Greg will be preaching in our 11 o'clock service. We're so glad that you're here with us. And uh, brother, I'm excited for what God's going to do. Welcome. Glad to have you. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning and welcome. Uh, please give me a minute to adjust to how awkward I might sound on the speakers. Um, I'm really excited to be here. Really honored that Craig would give me this opportunity. Um, this church has been such a blessing to myself and my family, so um, thank you all for being here and being willing to listen. While you're, we're going to be in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 8 today. Um, while you're turning, I'd like to just, you know, bear a little bit of my heart uh, and ask you to connect with us. We have a connect card in the bulletin. You can also go to our website, malvinhill.org, and fill out a connect card there. I am I, I'm pursuing a call in the ministry. This is a very strange time in my life. Um, I've been doing the same thing with the military for 14 years. Yet I've had a church family here that's walked with me every step of the way. Uh, I don't know if you're going through a season of change. I don't, I don't know what God's doing in your life right now. But I can tell you, if you need people to walk alongside you, you'll find them here. If you just need to get out of the wind for a minute, uh, you need to find a refuge of kind of a safe haven. Brothers and sisters to to come around you and kind of put their arms around you a little bit. You'll, you'll find that here. We're an imperfect people trying to make a God that sent his son down to die on a tree proud of us. Um, but you'll find something that you need here, I promise you. So connect with us. Um, I'd, I'd love to get to know you. I'd gain a sibling if you become a member of our church. So um, I'd love to see and get to know you. I hope you've reached Romans chapter 12 by now. Uh, I'll read verses 1 through 8. If you, would, if you would please stand with me as I read. This is the word of the Lord. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you are good. You have given us the world and you ask us to die in return. Grant us your perspective that we may understand our lives in light of your goodness to us. 
Help us see that the world can offer us so little when compared to what you've given already. Eternity is beyond our comprehension. Help us consider it today to consider how impossible it would be for us to get there on our own so we can see that you are the God who gives. Be with us today, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Our big question today is how do you present yourself as a living sacrifice? Paul, the author of Romans, appeals to us in verse 1 to present our bodies. Bodies, in Paul's mind, is the idea of self. We, we, we put self in there because it's a more familiar term to us. Bodies, again, it's anything controlled by the will. So you are expected, in Paul's mind, to present anything that you are able to present as a living sacrifice. To sacrifice your body or yourself means you sacrifice your thoughts. You sacrifice your, your actions. You sacrifice your desires. You sacrifice your time, your effort, your physical labor, your money. You sacrifice anything that you are able to give. That is your spiritual worship. And remember, we worship God in spirit and truth. We know this. We have to worship him in spirit and truth because God is spirit. This is part of our spiritual worship. But I want to start with why today. Why would you sacrifice those things to God? I'm sure many of you have a Sunday school answer ready. You know, God told me to, okay? But honestly, reckon with it. Why give your thoughts, your actions, your desires, your time, your effort, or anything else to God first? What's in it for you? Paul's answer might surprise you, but he, and he answers it right away. See, towards the end of this passage, it kind of seems like a list of good options or opportunities or things available to you to give. But there's this tiny little appeal at the beginning that illuminates the entire thought. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Paul says that God's mercies are the reason we should present ourselves as a living sacrifice. But which mercies is he appealing to? I want you to imagine for a moment that your employer walked up to you, and they looked at you and said, you are precious to me. I'm going to pay you what you need from now until the end of your life, increasing as time goes on and increasing as your family grows. I want to ensure you are cared for for the rest of your life. I will make sure that any trouble your family encounters is cared for. There is no catch. You will always have enough for what you need. If your employer walked up to you and said that to you, what would you think? My first question would be, me? Why me? Why would you do that for me? But the second question might be, how could I repay such a generous act? See, Paul's using the same sort of rationale as for why we should present ourselves as living sacrifices, but he's appealing to God's free gift of eternity spent with him. Eternity, there is no need, no pain, no suffering, living in harmony with the God who designed us for his presence. Even the greatest gift from your employer can only last until you die. God's gift is greater in every conceivable way. Retirement lasts until death. Salvation is for eternity. In light of this glorious truth, sacrifice yourself for his purposes in this life. See, God is not holding heaven hostage until we sacrifice enough. We don't work and earn salvation at the end of our life. He gives us the greatest gift that he could ever give and asks us to die in return. Paul is saying, in light of this, consider this. How could you not respond? That's what Paul's asking us today. How could you not respond knowing what he's already given? See, a retirement you work for for 20 years, 20, 30, 40 years, however long. 
God gave you retirement as soon as you accepted him into your heart. As soon as you accepted Jesus Christ, he gave you eternity. He gives you forever. In light of this, give him your life. For those of you who don't know or aren't familiar with the story and what the gift is and what we're awaiting, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, predicted thousands of years before his arrival on earth, came to earth as a man, died on a cross, and physically rose from the dead that we might spend eternity with him, that he might defeat death so we could live forever. He did this to conquer sin and death, and this is what we were asked to respond to. This is why we should sacrifice ourselves for him in this life. But to live for God, you must die to self. You must offer your thoughts, your desires, every bit of you on the altar. The moment sin entered into the world in the garden, death became necessary to attain life. We see this in the Old Testament sacrifices through slain, charred flesh, We see Jesus as the completion of this idea as his death made a way, paved a way for us to enter heaven. Your death to sin allows his life to reign in you. Death is necessary for life. Keep this in mind as we progress through this passage. You must die in order to live. Our Lord affirms this in John chapter 12, verses 24 to 26, when he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So we've answered the why. How do we get started sacrificing all that we can, all that we are? First today, be changed. In verse 2, Paul gives us a warning, a plan, and an encouragement. The warning, do not be conformed to this world. I want you to imagine for a moment that you're a cup of hot water. The world is a bag of tea. The longer that tea sits inside of you, the more you look, smell, taste like the world. Paul is saying here, watch out. That's not what you're supposed to taste like. If we lose our saltiness, what good are we except being trampled underfoot? Recognize what the world is and watch that you don't become what the world wants to make you into. But what is the world? This term is used a lot in the Bible, so what is Paul referring to here? The world here is the spirit of the age we live in, the place we are told to live by those who want to take our money and consume our souls. In America, it is the self-serving, materialistic, individualized community where you stand in a circle of people and feel completely and utterly alone. It is the city with new cars and empty hearts, with skyrocketing divorce rates and hopeless adolescence. It's the city where chaos reigns. So how do we avoid conformity to this world? We are to be Daniels in this present Babylon. Praying to our God despite laws and stories that make it seem impossible or ridiculous to do so. We've all seen the stories of the coaches that are getting fired for praying with their students. We've all seen it. And yet, what are we to do? We are to keep praying despite what we see because God commanded us to. Daniel was not conformed to Babylon. He was transformed by the scriptures and by prayer. This is Paul's plan for us and what Paul is telling us to do. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. It remained Daniel's number one focus no matter what happened around him. But Daniel only rejected Babylon because he knew it was against God's design. And he only knew it was against God's design because he understood God's design. And he only understood God's design because he knew the scriptures. Many others went native in Babylon. They conformed. 
We see in the beginning when Nebuchadnezzar invites the best and the brightest of Israel into his kingdom, what does he offer them? He offers them his food, his wine. He offers them all of his education and everything. He doesn't do it at a charge because he knows what he wants is for Babylonian culture to steep into these Israelites and for the best and brightest of Israel to go back and infect the rest of Israel to make them look, smell, taste, act exactly like Babylonians. That's what the world is asking us to do. How many that you know are lifeless, walking dead, molding into the world, rather than living dead who are being transformed? And what can transform like the Word of God? How many of you have sat and looked at a piece of Ikea furniture as you're trying to construct it, and you just think, I have to trust that this is going to come together? Like you're looking at the wall over here, the roof there, the wall, and you're like, there's just no way that this is going to turn into the thing on the box. But how magnificent is it? And how nice would it be that if you could be inside of the designer's head as you're constructing it? Like, really, what were they thinking? How magnificent is it that we can be inside the head of our maker through his word as we're trying to live out the lives he constructed for us? The good works he prepared in advance for us to do. Be transformed by letting the word of God steep inside of you. And once it's steeped, be willing to practice and share what's transformed you with the body of Christ instead of waiting for the perfect opportunity. Frankly, I'm not convinced there's such a thing as a perfect opportunity. Anyone who's played any sport knows that you practice in a controlled environment before game time. You're in the coach's world until those Friday night lights hit. You have a family here in this building that you can practice with. How sad to arrive in heaven having never known or practiced your gift. What a disappointing thought. May none of us be asked why we ignored such a gracious gift in this life when we arrive in heaven. This church is your training ground, your practice field. Do something you've been nervous to do that you may grow in holiness. Lay your gift on the altar and see what God does with it. What's the worst that could happen? You teach a lesson, it's terrible, and Miss Rhonda doesn't invite you back? I mean, honestly, you know? You've at, least, you've at least eliminated one option for your gifting, right? No, I'm kidding. Miss Rhonda may have yelled at you, and that's definitely the worst part. <laughs> but all kidding aside, what's stopping you? Are you still convinced that the entire purpose of you attending church is for you to show up and be fed? You're the member of the body of Christ. What good does your diet do if no one else benefits from it? If you're being an arm but think you're a back, have an honest conversation with a pastor. Just because you've always done something doesn't mean it's the thing that you have to do forever. And these men are willing to walk you through it. If you've never done something, anything is better than no thing. Don't wait so long you miss the blessings God has in store for you or for others. You never know what someone might need right now that you have. And you won't know until you ask. And don't be afraid to probe around a little bit, making mistakes, learning as you go, and praying for guidance. God's design is amazing. As you grow and as you go, you will have others who will notice giftings you may not have seen, giftings you certainly wouldn't see by sitting inside your study and thinking about it for a long time. Discern by doing. Remember, Paul encourages us that by testing, we can discern the will of God. We know the will of God is good and acceptable and perfect. Testing involves action on our behalf. 
In EUD school, we have a three-pronged approach to our academics. Learn it, practice it, test it. So we would learn a concept, big concept, like air ordinance. Here's how air ordinance generally functions. You watch out for the radar nose. You know it explodes from about here. So here's how you approach it. This is a safe way to approach it. Once you got through the concept part, you'd practice a few problems. So you'd practice you know, four, five, six problems. And then you get to the testing phase. Well, testing, you could be tested on a problem you've seen or you've not seen, but you can refer back to the concepts originally. You will be tested. It's going to happen. And you may not have practiced the problem, but you can at least get the concepts down, practice with your brothers and sisters in Christ, and be as prepared for the test as you can possibly be. But you cannot expect to merely understand more and fulfill the will of God in your life. You must make use of what you know to be of use to God. If you're rejecting conformity to the world, being transformed, and failing forward into God's will for your life, you are being changed. But for you to change, you must first recognize that it needs to occur. To recognize you need to change, you need to be humble. The next three verses give us a picture of Paul as a leader, not just a thinker. See, we hear a lot about Paul reasoning so well through Romans, but he was also a magnificent leader, an organizer of his understudies. Paul is orienting a group of believers towards a common goal. Paul makes it crystal clear that he's giving us these commands in order to build up a church. Put another way, your spiritual gifts are not given to you so that you can be admired for them. They are given to you so that you may build up the church. And the more healthy you are individually, the more healthy the church is corporately. To be humble and build up the church, you first must know yourself. Again, in this section of our passage, Paul begins with a warning. Do not think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Sacrifice your pride to your brothers and sisters. Remember what was done for you. Remember the mercies of God, how each breath is a gift. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. It is only with this posture of the heart that we can take an accurate accounting of the gifts God has blessed us with. A conceited heart, when your heart is puffed up, you'll make a bloated estimation of your gifts and find fault with anyone who disagrees. If any of you have ever rejected, been angered by criticism that was given in love, your heart has been puffed up. But on the other hand, a shrunken, wounded heart will make no estimation and believe they have nothing to offer. If you find yourself constantly calling yourself stupid, worthless, good for nothing, your heart is too small. Humility is not a hatred of yourself or what God has gifted you with. Humility is born from gratefulness, not hatefulness. Both an overestimation and an underestimation of one's worth is an act of pride and rebellion against what God has rightly ordered. I read a book recently called The Seven Deadly Sins Today by Henry Fairlay. In it, he diagnoses the most common forms the seven deadly sins takes in our current society. My favorite quote from the section on pride is this. Do some people not merely ask to be allowed to live and let live? But what we eventually find in them is an assertion of self-sufficiency, a denial of one's need for community with others, which is in fact a form of selfishness, since it is always accompanied by a refusal of one's obligation of community with others. Brothers and sisters, pride as a rejection of our dependence on others leads us to believe that we are our own gods. I cannot think of a more relevant statement for Americans today than this. 
We must not deny our need for community that we do not ignore our obligation of community with others. People need you, and you need people. And especially once you belong to the church, the body needs what you have, and you need what the body has. We must learn, especially today, especially in our day and age, and especially in America, to depend on one another. When was the last time you asked your neighbor for flour instead of making the trek to the grocery store? I know I've got a great neighbor that I did that with recently. But not only a fellow, your neighbors, why is knocking on the door of a fellow American so revolting today? And not only a fellow American, a fellow South Carolinian, possibly a fellow Gamecocks or Clemson fan. We have so much in common with our neighbors, and yet many of us dream of a house in the woods with nobody to get in our bubble. Yet don't our bubbles seem to continue to grow? It starts in high school with leave room for Jesus, and it grows to five acres when we turn 30. The quote by Henry Fairlay hits the nail on the head. When you deny your need for community with others, you eventually shirk your obligation of community with others. And where is this more pressing than the church? God has given us a design. He's told us we're his body, and he says, act like it. Yet we hear this as, I'm the body of Christ, not we are the body of Christ. I come to worship, not we come to worship. Your desire for independence and self-sufficiency is robbing you of the interdependence God designed you for. God designed us for. We are meant to rely on each other right here in this building. Look around you. These people are here for you and you for them. They sit next to you every single week. How foolish to leave your troubles at the door when there's help right inside. The first believer in Acts were together in all things and had all things in common. Why do you try to be everything to everyone instead of knowing your part and playing it exceptionally? That's the contrast Paul is drawing here. Know the part that you are to play and play it as well as you possibly can. What is stopping you from admitting that you are not enough? Be changed. Be humble and be involved. While I was preparing this sermon, I asked the Lord to preach it to me. I knew at that moment that he had been for eight years. See, I've been praying about my calling for eight years. I knew a number of years ago that the path I was on was not the path that I was supposed to be on, and yet I didn't know what path to jump on. (laughs) Many would agree that at that point in time I was not qualified to stand up here. I would agree with that. As a young man, I did not ask God where he would have me go. Rather than glorifying God with my gifts, I tried to eliminate my weaknesses. I tried to fix myself instead of following his plan for me. Does that sound familiar to any of you? See, I wrote my first poem about Jesus Christ at the age of 10. My teachers in English told me I wasn't afraid to fail, I was afraid to succeed. I've carried around volumes of fantasy novels since I was young, and I wanted to major English more than anything else, but I chose the practical path and became an engineer. My SAT and ACT scores showed a person far more gifted in reading and writing than math and science, and yet I chose a technical university and a STEM major. (laughs) You know? (laughs) 
I've spent most of my life running from my gifts. Brothers and sisters, don't make this mistake. God knows right where you are and he offers you a path back into his perfect design. Use your gifts to glorify God and build up the church. This next paragraph is for everyone, but it's mostly for you and you. Nothing will satisfy you unless you're doing what God has made you to do. Nothing. God made you for a purpose. If you are not living in his design, you will find glimpses of joy along the path, but the path will remain hazy. You'll be agitated without the ability to figure out why. You will find glimpses of joy, but you'll find yourself feeling empty in moments of achievement. This is not a punishment from God, it's a gut check. You are made for a purpose. He has a purpose for your life. He has works prepared in advance for you to do. Discovering this purpose is your road to walk. Nobody can walk it for you. Nobody can take the right risk at the right time on your behalf. It is your cross to bear. But hear me clearly. Not, I'm not encouraging everyone to give up a secular vocation for ministry. I do not believe that's everyone's role. I am, however, encouraging all of you to use your spiritual gifts in service to the church and keep the first things first. Eternity is far bigger than this life. This life is but a breath, but a mist that's fading and passing away quickly. Paul exhorts us here to use our gifts and use them well. He does not exhort us to try to check all the boxes and accumulate as many gifts for ourselves as we can along the way. He calls us to recognize our giftedness and use it for his glory with a grateful heart. This is how we look like the living dead, a walking, talking sacrifice. We die to what we want to be or think we should be, and we live to who we were made to be by our Creator. Stop shopping in the self-help aisle and trust that He is enough. Quit trying YouTube fads and believe that these ancient truths will satisfy your eternal soul. And once you've done this for a while, encourage and help others to identify and use their gifts. Paul is a wonderful study for this part of the passage because he models these behaviors. Do as I say, not as I do does not apply to Paul. First and second Timothy and Titus are termed the pastoral epistles because Paul is instructing his understudies how to run their operations, how to run a church. This is the natural progression of life. We learn it, we do it, and then we teach it. It's also the natural order of learning. The best people, when you know somebody knows something, if they can teach you something and it's clear, right? You know they actually really know something. They're not pretending that they know something. They really do know it. As our natural abilities wane over time, our experience grows and the ability to bring up the next generation comes along with it. Who are you coaching right now in the ways of the Lord? Better yet, who have you seen that needs coaching and you haven't engaged with? And which one of you that needs coaching is humble enough to ask for it? Start small. Start there. If someone is on your heart, they just might need something that you have. We are a body meant to operate together, cohesively. Don't the most complex movements require, require both practice and coaching? I, can, I grew up playing baseball. I could go and stand in a batting cage for hours and never get any better if I didn't have a coach showing me how to get it done. We know this. We see this everywhere we look. So why do we hesitate to practice it in the church? 
Our Lord Jesus Christ is looking for disciples. Disciples who are fully yielded to his purposes and who are willing to dig in with others and encourage them to do the same. Disciples who are sold out for his mission. Who have taken up their crosses, died to self, and been raised in righteousness. So how do you present yourself as a living sacrifice? If there's a part of you that you've not turned over to the Lord, will you turn it over to him today? If I miss that part of your heart that you keep hidden, will you give it to him today? Don't ignore it. If the Holy Spirit brought something up to your mind, don't shove it back down. You won't feel satisfied until you do so, until you deal with it. He promises a return on your investment, and his, and his word never returns void. The invitation today is simple. I invite you to give what you have not given before to Jesus Christ, that he might bless you and bless it. If you've not given your life to him, today can be the day. If you've held back your heart, he is waiting and he will take far better care of it than you ever could. But mainly, as Paul exhorts us so beautifully, if you are not using your gifts in service of the church, we are missing something. This body is missing something. This body is missing eyes, it's missing arms, it's missing legs. We're limping through. <laughs> We're trying. Would you believe today that he knows better than you do and give him yourself? I promise you won't regret it, but my promises aren't worth much. He promises you won't regret it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you know us. You knew us before we were formed in the womb. God, you have work for us to do, individually and corporately, and yet you ask us to to know you first and foremost. Help us to know you that we might trust God in you and in, our, in your perfect plan and design for our lives. Help us to hand over those pieces of you that we haven't yet. And God, be with us as we go about our week. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.